So we are in Matthew chapter 15 today. Uh, the astute among you will see that we have been working our way through Matthew for the last month and a bit. And we are up to now a quite controversial section of scripture that we actually looked at, and I suspect most of you don't recall it, but two years ago we were in the book of Mark and we looked at this same section. So this is the story of Jesus uh, where he goes up to Tyre and Sidon and then he speaks to, in the book of Matthew, it says the Canaanite woman. In the book of Mark, it talks about the Syrophoenician woman. The two stories are clearly the same story. Uh, so a lot of what I say today is going to cross over with what I said two years ago, and I'm just assuming most of you will not remember. Uh, I think it's a safe bet. Um, uh, also, the reason that's happening is because I've been quite sick this last week, and that has meant that my uh, it assisted my preparation to be able to borrow from my own notes quite heavily. So we're in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. It says, Jesus left that place and went off to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, you would remember Jesus has just had the feeding of 5,000. So John the Baptist has been executed. Jesus is grieving. He's very upset. He wants to be alone. He puts off in his boat to be alone. When he gets to the shore, everyone's there. He can't get rid of them. But instead of just feeling angry or upset or like just not wanting to deal with that nonsense, he has compassion on them. So he heals their sick and he spends the whole day healing their sick. And then he, uh, they, they have no food. The disciples are like, what do I do? Get rid of them. Jesus like feed them. And they're like, what? And then Jesus miraculously breaks the bread and, uh, and fishes and they manage to feed 5,000 men and their families. And they have 12 baskets left over. It's amazing. Then Jesus finally says to them, leave me alone. They go off in the boat. He goes up the mountain and then they get stuck in a storm. I can see Jesus on the top of the mountain overlooking the storm, rolling his eyes, thinking, why do I always have to go and save these people? And then he comes down the hill, walks on the water out to them, freaks them all out because they think it's a ghost. And then Peter hops out of the water, uh, onto the water, but begins to sink. And Jesus rescues Peter. And then he gets in the boat and they, he brings the boat carefully and safely into shore. And then here we are. Jesus left that place. His attempts to get away from everyone keep failing. But Jesus left that place and went off to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So if you know your geography, which I'm sure all of you do, the top of Lake Galilee, we have Capernaum, which is where Jesus spent a lot of his life hanging out uh, and probably lived there. Peter's um, family was there, and that's where the, the fishing village kind of thing was going on there. From that region, they went up. So they were near the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee. As they headed up, they hit the, to, to the west and northwest, they would hit the Mediterranean Sea. And so up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, we have Tyre and then Sidon. And so these, uh, the region of Tyre and Sidon is kind of near where um, jo uh, Jono and Natalie are in Beirut now. So if you've ever looked at a map to see where they are, this is the region that we're talking about, just south of, of modern day Beirut. And a Canaanite woman from those parts came out and shouted, have pity on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is demon-possessed. She is in a bad way. I'm reading from the N.T. Wright Bible for everyone version. If you're wondering, uh, the language is different to what you're, you're getting there in your NIVs. Uh, she's in a bad way. Jesus, however, said nothing at all to her. 
His disciples came up. Please send her away, they asked. She's shouting after us. I was only sent, replied Jesus, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The woman, however, came and threw herself down at his feet. Master, she said, please help me. It isn't right, replied Jesus, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I know, master, but even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from their master's table. You've got great faith, haven't you, my friend, replied Jesus. All right, let it be as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that moment. Now we can, we can read this and just kind of gloss over it and say, what an interesting tale. It is problematic though. The more closely you look at this passage, the more challenging it becomes because Jesus, unlike all the crowds prior to this, where he has compassion and immediately heals them, in this case, Jesus ignores the woman and then he suggests that she's a dog. This is a problem. Um, This is not a kind interaction. And so theologians throughout history have had to come up with clever ways to try and justify this offense. And I think they have largely missed the mark because they have come at it from a particular worldview, uh, from a particular colonialist, uh, particularly white, masculine worldview. And they kind of miss some of the more subtle things that are going on here. So I want to do a bit of a cultural historical study here to try and understand what could possibly be going on here to justify this. Uh, But let's start with a little bit of history. Uh, So uh, early in history, the way that people justified this scripture was to say that it was an allegory. So the offensiveness of the text was largely ignored because people said, well, it's, it's actually just a metaphor. The woman represents a convert uh, petitioning for her child where the, uh, where the child allegorically represents the Gentiles. The geographical distance between the interaction, so the woman is in one place and the child is in the other place, this is, um, this is because the Gentiles did not experience Jesus directly but only through his word. Remember, this is allegory. This is, we're talking early church fathers here. Finally, the children uh, at the master's table are Israel and the dogs are the Gentiles. The table is a picture of the Holy Scriptures and the bread then um, is the gospel. Now, to our modern understanding, the allegorical reading of this is a bit confusing. We're just going to jump straight past it. I don't take a lot of stock in it myself. (coughs) At the other end of the spectrum... I think the most modern retelling of this, if you go online nowadays, especially in the deconstruction crowd, and I'm in that deconstruction crowd, I read a lot of the stuff they write, the the favorite position of that kind of more kind of left-wing liberal uh, rereading of this text is to say, well, Jesus and the disciples are clearly wrong. And this is a great awakening. This shows us Jesus' humanity. He is a racist, chauvinist, Jewish man. And he's finally put in his place by this woman. And because of her clever musing, he comes to a realization that his own message is actually also for the Gentiles. And this is a picture of Jesus learning and growing. And that we should then also see this as a way to make more kind of uh, the more pointy, sharp, uh, aggressive, uncomfortable elements of evangelical Christianity should see this and see even Jesus had to say I was wrong. So perhaps our view of saying this particular type of person or this particular lifestyle or this particular identity or this particular insert whichever group it is that we don't like, even Jesus had to make room for them. So maybe we should learn from this example and make room for them as well. Um, And in... 
Like I, I kind of understand the sentiment there. But if you have to make Jesus out as some kind of racist chauvinist in order to establish your theological point, I think you've probably missed the mark. Because all of the evidence that I see in Scripture is that Jesus wasn't those things. He wasn't xenophobic. He wasn't anti-Gentile or anti-woman or anti-downcast or downtrodden or anti-adulterer or anti-eunuch uh, or anti what. He wasn't anti-anyone really, except for he was anti-religious spirits that wanted to have a go at people. Uh, so I think that that is a very uncharitable reading of the text that doesn't adequately encapsulate what we know about Jesus. Uh, so in that kind of, in that worldview that, that has that view, it has to paint the woman as a downtrodden, harassed, sexualized, un, underprivileged, humiliated victim that is ignored, then insulted, and then finally shamed and belittled into submission simply because she wanted her daughter to be healed. That's, the, that's what we have to do in order to accept that view. And I just, I'm not okay with that. Um, whilst I, I love the idea that this woman is some kind of prophet that cleverly rebukes Jesus out of his culturally conditioned racism and sexism, and changes his attitude towards the Gentiles, just not convinced. So let's keep going. In the more conservative but reasonable land of interpretation, uh, we have people like R.T. France, uh, who says, Jesus is a teacher who allows and indeed incites his pupils to mount a victorious argument against the foil of his own reluctance. So he says Jesus is setting her up um, not to humiliate her, not to shame her, but because he knows because he's Jesus and he's a prophet, he knows that she is going to overcome his barb and it's going to be a great teaching tool for his disciples. So it's a, a, a lesson about the kingdom of God and the future salvation of the Gentiles and it's not offensive because Jesus knew that she would overcome it. Others highlight the language uh, and they say that the word for dog here uh, is actually uh, diminutive. So it's talking about a puppy and so it's actually more, uh, it's endearing. So it's an endearing teaching moment. He's not saying, you're a rabid, feral dog. He's saying, oh, you're a puppy. So they try to diminish how offensive it is by making the language less of a racial slur and more of a warm kind of thing. Uh, William Barclay says this, we can be quite sure that the smile on Jesus's face and the compassion in his eyes robbed the words of all insult and bitterness. And that Jesus... Uh, his ultimate action of freeing the daughter and commending the woman's faith indicate and show us that all along his intention was to be compassionate. Um, and it wasn't because his own racist heart had somehow been transformed by the interaction. Uh, another observation people make, and I agree with this observation. Uh, so in, in Matthew, it says that um, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, send this woman away. I think that's probably an unfair translation. Um, the word there, apeluo, is the word that we use for set free uh, or to sort of send away is how it's been translated here. But it could also mean set free or can, it can like be to set free someone from bondage or to set free someone from a demon, for instance. So I agree that the disciples likely came to Jesus knowing how he keeps reacting to people who come to him, the disciples said, this woman's harassing us. Can you please just set her daughter free? Can you get rid of her by healing her daughter? So the disciples aren't the bad guys here saying, oh, what an annoying woman. Let's get rid of her. 
They're saying, can you please heal this woman's daughter? I think that that is consistent with the language. And that's actually how the Catholic Church has chosen to view this. And it's also a basis for why they would say we should pray to the saints. Because the woman's petitions were heard by Peter and the other disciples, who then brought that petition to Jesus. And then Jesus healed the woman. So the Catholic Church would say, this is evidence for why we pray to the saints because they can then go to Jesus and petition on our behalf. So I disagree with the semantics there, but I do agree with the, the idea that the disciples probably aren't the bad guys in this story. Okay, there are all of the other kind of historical translations. Now I want to look at some context that I think gives us a better understanding of this. And so when I look at context, I like to look at uh, historical context, literary context, the canonical or the where does it fit in the whole scripture, but also geography um, and like economic stuff, what's going on in the broader world in terms of powers and uh, kingship. Uh, but also I like to look at the hermeneutical lens, the, the how do we interpret the scripture uh, that we bring to any particular thing. So my hermeneutic is really not a secret. I start with Jesus is good. And God is like Jesus. So a lot of people say um, that, you know, that Jesus is good and God is also good. But then they look at some of the things God's done that are horrific, in my opinion, and they just somehow, and I think it's cognitive dissonance, they justify the, the violence that we see uh, perp perpetrated by God in the Old Testament. Um, and I don't know, like I can kind of understand how they justify that. But for me, my hermeneutic fundamentally starts with Jesus. So I have to understand God through the lens of Jesus. And my lens is that Jesus is good, that God is love, that Jesus died for all people, not just some people. And with that in mind, I can't view Jesus in this scripture. I have to kind of say, what's the interpretation that doesn't make Jesus a racist chauvinist bully? Because I just don't think that's true about Jesus. So my hermeneutic says that can't be true. So I'm just being honest about that. I won't accept a view here that somehow makes Jesus a bad guy. So with that on the table, how can I then understand this scripture, which is challenging to be something that doesn't present Jesus that way? So Tyre, like I already said, it's on the Mediterranean Sea on the east coast, about 50 kilometers north of Nazareth where Jesus uh, was, you know, he uh, grew up. And then it's about 35 kilometers uh, further up the, uh, the Mediterranean, we get to Sidon, which is about, like I said, 40 kilometers south of modern day Beirut. Now, this is not really part of Israel, this area. This is north of Israel. This is beyond Israel. This is kind of Israel kind of largely stopped at the top of the Sea of Galilee. That's kind of the extent of Israel's um, kind of control here. Uh, so, um, so we see that these port areas in Tyre and Sidon, these are Gentile areas, uh, which is why in Mark it says that this woman who was uh, Syrophoenician, uh, it also says that she was a uh, Greek, that she was Hellenized. So, um, oh my God, here are my notes about that. There's more information. Right, so as recently as 40 BC, so this is like Jesus is what, like 30? So this is like 70 years earlier. The people of Tyre invaded Galilee. So in Jesus's kind of um, family's living memory, this is a people who literally came and killed them. 
So there is animosity between these groups. The prophet Joel uh, in the scriptures, in Joel 4, 4 to 6, he rebukes the people of Tyre and Sidon because they sold Israelites as slaves. So we see enmity going back here a very, very long time. In Acts 12, 20, we hear that the people of Tyre and Sidon had negotiated with King Herod, uh, Agrippa I, to supply food to them. So put this in context. So Nazareth, Galilee, was a bit of a breadbasket, lots of great produce. And Herod had agreed to take their food and send it to Tyre and Sidon. So we have a situation here where the Galilean peasants and their very rich, sophisticated neighbors in the north who are Hellenized, who live in these illustrious cities, they're not peasant folk. So we have peasant folk having to give up all of their food as taxes and it's been taken from them and given to their rich neighbors in the north, creating significant tension. Uh, there is also something of a kind of parallel here, a prophetic retelling of the story in uh, the 9th century BC where the prophet Elijah travels to Tyre and Sidon during a famine and meets a Phoenician woman. Uh, and in response to her faith, Elijah leaves her with a jar of flour and a jug of oil that doesn't run out during the drought. And then later he goes back and he raises her son from the dead. And there is this picture of God in the Old Testament providing redemption and something beautiful for those Gentiles then, or those pagans then, uh, that Jesus is now reenacting in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. Back to our story, though. The people in Tyre and Sidon are wealthy city folk, Hellenized, sophisticated, powerful. They are the uh, political power that has been oppressing the people of Nazareth in Jesus' lifetime. And in Jesus' grandparents' lifetime, um, they were literally invading and killing them. So we have this picture of generations of enmity, poverty in Nazareth, and prosperity and the power dynamic of colonialism from the north to the south. Jesus left that place and went off to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus is now saying, I need to escape. Everywhere I go, everyone knows me here and I can't get some space to grieve. My friend has been executed. Things are ramping up and I know that my time is coming. And Jesus is worried and he wants to be alone with his disciples so that he can continue to teach them before his passion and before his crucifixion. So he heads north into the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is a, a, a Greek area. But a Canaanite woman from those parts hears that he's coming. And she comes out and she shouts, Have pity on me, Lord, son of David. She uses this messianic title to call out to him. My daughter is demon-possessed. She's in a bad way. Jesus, however, said nothing at all to her. Jesus is... He is tired. He is kind of done. Please send her away. And so his disciples came up. Please send her away, they asked. And again, I think this is more, please just heal the daughter. Set the daughter free. Loose the daughter from her bondage. She's shouting after us. And Jesus says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is in the hearing of this woman now. He's like, I've, I haven't come. I've come for the Gentiles. I haven't come. Um, sorry, I've come for the, the Israelites, for the people of God, for Yahweh's people. I haven't come for you. 
And the woman, however, came and threw herself down at his feet. It says she prostrated herself, like lay down. This is a posture of submission. Master, she said, please help me. It isn't right, Jesus replied, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I know, Master, but even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from their master's table. You've got great faith, haven't you, my friend? Jesus replied. All right, let it be as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that moment. The relationship between Tyre and Sidon and the Canaanites who were there previously, who were driven out. The most famous Phoenician woman uh, in history is not this woman. The most famous Phoenician woman from, from the region of Tyre and Sidon is Jezebel, a name you might recall. Um, and so when uh, Jezebel, you know, she was there, th there was war and enmity between these people going back so far that they couldn't even remember who was the, the bad guy and who was the good guy. In war, there is no good guys and bad guys. There's just awfulness. There's just bloodshed. There's just anger and violence. And that is what's going on between these people groups. And Jesus is on the side that is the oppressed people now. Jesus grew up in a region where the bread, Jesus says to her, what does he say? He says, the children's, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What he's saying is, you are an oppressive power. This woman is not the, like we would normally see it, and normally this is presented as she is a, a downtrodden, impoverished, sexualized, you know, not powerful, just ruined woman. That's not true at all. This is a woman of, of prestige and power coming from a position of power to Jesus saying, I want what you have. This is just, uh, and I got a, there's a great quote here. Um, where is the quote? This is from a guy named James Perkinson. He says, Jesus' initial refusal of the woman's request could be grasped as an act of resistance to yet one more appropriation of the resources of the oppressed by the powerful. Why would I give you the bread? You have already taken our bread and our produce. You have already invaded us. You have taken everything from us so that we are in poverty, so that we are uh, impoverished, and now you want something else from us. See, normally in order for this to be truly offensive from Jesus, he needs to be in the position of power as a rabbi and as a man standing over this prostrate woman. But really, he is in her region, in her place of power, and she is a wealthy aristocrat and she has come to him to beg for his help. But the power imbalance is the opposite of what we have been historically told. Uh, I bet I, the, the, the historical background stuff here, there's a bunch of people that I, I've been reading about this. Um, the, the most prominent of, prominent of them uh, is a, a gentleman named uh, Pauling Sun. I think that's how it's pronounced. I'll ask Chevelle afterwards. Uh, it's a Singaporean um, theology seminary, so perhaps she'll be able to help me with how to pronounce um, Pauling's name. Uh, but he presents the Syrophoenician woman or the, the Canaanite woman as it is characterized in Matthew as a, the powerful character in the narrative rather than the oppressed woman that she is often presented as. And instead of seeing Jesus as the dominating patriarchal androcentric colonialist, Pauling argues that we should actually be grappling with the opposite social power imbalance. 
And when the woman is viewed as a representative person from an elite economic class that has habitually taken advantage of the peasants of Galilee, the conversation takes on a very different tone. Jesus' comments very well reflect the lived experience of the bread being taken out of the mouths of Galilean children to be given to their rich Gentile neighbours. So Jesus uses this proverbial phrase. This is a common kind of attack to call out an oppressive colonizing power that this woman represents. In doing that, he's not punching down, he's punching up, which changes the tone. He's among those who have been silenced and unheard, and he is now voicing that disparity. And the woman does not disagree with him. She she simply straight up accepts um, the barb that he offers there and she continues then to say, but please, I understand that. We have stolen your food is the essence there. And in her humility and her implied repentance, her endearing faith continues there and opens a door for Jesus to heal her daughter. Because Jesus had every reason to not, like to actually feel animosity He's already enraged at the death of his friend and cousin. He won't be left alone. He's then walked all the way up here. Another person is harassing him, and it's a rich, wealthy woman telling him to heal his, her daughter. But then when she gets to his presence, and he sees her genuine contrition, but her genuine faith, even through the harsh words that he shares, yes, the words are harsh, his compassion still wins over. This is a real letter that was written to a group of people a long time ago. And the author has their own, Matthew has his own agenda here as well. So in the retelling of this story, Jesus is perfectly modeling what, I, what we shared from Elijah um, from centuries earlier, the story that they understood. Jesus, uh, Matthew is retelling in a time in the church's history where they are trying to figure out what it means for the Gentiles to be saved. They're retelling this story and saying, yes, you do have genuine grounds to be nervous or scared or angry at the Gentiles. You are an oppressed people. But here is Jesus showing us how we should behave. So Jesus, in the retelling of this story, Jesus is mimicking something of the disdain or the fear or the hurt, the generational trauma of a group of, of Israelites against their Gentile neighbors. And Matthew is saying, but look at the compassion that overwhelms that. Now, Greg Boyd, when talking about this, uh, says that this is something of prophetic theater as well. It's like when Jesus turned the tables over at the temple as a prophetic act, or how his baptism reflected the people of Israel entering into the promised land. Here, Jesus is fulfilling the role of the typical Jew in this interaction, but then the tables get turned on all of their expectations. They're like, finally, Jesus is getting angry at a Gentile. Maybe now we start the war path. But instead, again, even in this interaction, Jesus' compassion wins. And we need to see that this is true for us as much as it was for the disciples who, even if their heart was to say, yes, just heal this woman, it wasn't because they had compassion. It was because they wanted to get rid of her. And so often 
I think that even in Christendom today, there is a sense of we will do something to get rid of people. Just, yes, just help it, just do the thing. But that's not what we see in Jesus. Finally, the other thing that I I would say about this text, and this is a reflection from N.T. Wright, is that this woman gained access to a kingdom reality that was not yet manifest. See, the idea of the Gentiles being saved, I am a beneficiary of that as a Gentile. The idea of the Gentiles being saved at this point in history when Matthew was writing this was still questionable. It was still something that hadn't happened. In the life and ministry of Jesus, he had come to the people of Israel, not to the Gentiles at this time. But this woman was able to break through that season into the reality of the kingdom of God. She grabbed a hold of something that would be true, that was not currently true. And as Christians, what is it that we should be grabbing a hold of that will be true, that is not currently true? And we look in history and an example of this we can see in William Wilberforce, and, and the Christians of that era who said, you know what, slavery is wrong. And in the kingdom of God, there is no slavery. There is no bondage. There is no dominion and control and oppressiveness like that. And they were willing to say, we will manifest that now. We will work and do something now to bring about a kingdom of God promise that is for the future. We're going we're gonna to wrench that truth into the present. So what is it that we need to grab a hold of that is true in the kingdom of God and will be true in the time to come that is not currently true. And we need to say, we will make this happen. What ground needs to be taken? What effort needs to be made? What, uh, you know, thing can we grab a hold of and say, actually, this is an absolute truth that must happen. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you, that you do have this uh, prophetic theater, that you play out something for us to teach us a lesson. And it's a, a lesson that was taught in the Old Testament and now a lesson that was taught in the New Testament and a lesson that's been taught again and again in history, that your kingdom comes and on earth it is done in heaven. Um, but that's, you know, like that's just, we want it to all happen now, God. Let your kingdom come now, God, and make us uh, your uh, vessel for that. When we see the oppression, when we see um, those who are bound and need to be set free, when we see those who are out, the other, like the Gentiles were, what is it that we can do to have compassion, to bring them in? What needs to change inside of our hearts so that that kingdom reality can be now, not just in the future? I pray you would convict our hearts of that. In Jesus' name, amen. So, yeah, it's a very interesting scripture, I think. Um, But I think it changes the narrative considerably when we see Jesus as a representative of a downtrodden people instead of Jesus being the person who holds power in that situation. Um, it does change that narrative and I think it fits. Like I think sometimes we, uh, Greg Boyd has this thing where he says, because we know what Jesus is like, we have to find an answer that will fit with that, however unlikely it is. Um, But I actually, in reading this and looking at the historical stuff, I don't think this is an unlikely scenario. Um, In the book of 
Mark in the retelling of this story, it talks about the girl being in bed at home um, and uh, the, the word used for bed is actually like a, a wealthy person's bed, not a mattress. Like there is a, in the language, you, you get the impression that, that the girl is at home in her own home, in her own bed because they're rich. Uh, and it's something that we don't get as easily when we just read that she's in bed uh, in the English. Um, but there is a further insinuation there that this woman was not the downtrodden, impoverished woman that we often get presented. And like I said, that is a picture of the theological kind of hermeneutical worldview that we have been given because most theology has been developed by uh, men in Europe and America. And they can't conceive of a world where this woman was actually a powerful, wealthy, influential person because they see the first century world and they say all women are nothing. Uh, but that was kind of, perhaps that may have been true more so in Israel, but not necessarily true in the Hellenistic world. Um, so it is interesting to see this in a different light. Anyway, I'll leave it at that.